Life a Man's Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. That's Jeremiah 22, three guys. Thanks so much for listening into the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. Before we get into today's content, I just want to remind you guys that we do have a YouTube channel. So for those of you listening to this, I know most of you have listened to this podcast since 2017, but we did launch a YouTube channel earlier this year. So if you go into the show notes, you can find that and subscribe and thank you to the couple thousand subscribers that we have up to this point, but let's go ahead and get into the rest of the content for today. So I want to read a quote from one of my favorite movies, and that movie is Boondock Saints. Okay. So this is a movie that's probably not appropriate. Not probably. It's definitely not appropriate for all ages. It's a movie that I saw back in college, but it's a, it's a very interesting movie about these two brothers that are basically trying to even the score with all these bad dudes on the street. Now there's some, you know, fairly sacrilegious things that happen in that they're using scripture, you know, out of context to basically allow them to go and kill these people, these bad men that are doing crimes in their area and all that. But at the very beginning of the movie, there's a scene where these two brothers are in this church or in this Catholic church. And, you know, the, the, you know, whatever the priest, he's up there doing his thing. And he's talking about this story that a lot of you have heard about, or maybe the first time you heard about it was because of this movie, but there's, there's music. It's kind of this buildup and it's the first time we get to see these brothers. So I'm going to go ahead and read the quote. And this is from the priest in the movie. And I'm reminded on this holy day of the sad story of Kitty Genovese. As you all may remember a long time ago, almost 30 years ago, this poor soul cried out for help time and time again, but no person answered her calls. Though many saw, no one so much as called the police. They all just watched as Kitty was being stabbed to death in broad daylight. They watched as her assailant walked away. Now, we must all fear evil men, but there is another kind of evil which we must fear most, and that is the indifference of good men. And that really sends you into what's going on in that movie with these two guys trying to even the score with all these evil men and take them out and all that kind of stuff. Now, this is actually a fictional movie, obviously, referring to an actual murder, the real life murder of a woman named Kitty Genevieve. So I'm going to get into that story here because it really springboards us into what we're talking about today. So. Pay attention. March 13th of 1964. This was in Queens, New York City. Kitty Genovese, she was a 28-year-old female bartender. She was stabbed to death outside of her apartment by a man named Winston Mosley, a 29-year-old Manhattan native. Now, Mosley was arrested because of an unrelated incident six days later. Okay, but while he was in custody, he confessed to murdering Genovese. Now, at trial... He was found guilty of the murder. He was sentenced to death, but his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. And so after 15, 52 years of a life sentence, Mosley died in prison on March the 28th of 2016. Now, guys, if that were all you knew about the story, you know, that, that would be terrible enough, right? Like that, that's a horrible, horrible thing that this woman, this innocent woman was just murdered, right? But there's, there's worse things and there's worse details. And we'll get into those here in just a second. But people being stabbed to death, unfortunately, is not that uncommon. I mean, believe it or not, more people are stabbed to death in the United States every year than die because they were shot by someone with a rifle. 
right? That's just a little factoid that I'm sure that'll send all the anti-Second Amendment people into a tizzy, but nonetheless, it's true. But I'll digress here. There are more details that are interesting about this terrible day. And so uh, one thing that I thought, you know, Wikipedia is not always the greatest source for something, but there were a lot of citations about this story on the Wikipedia page. So I just want to read from the description as to what happened on this day, because again, it'll really get us into the meat of what we're talking about today, because there were a couple of dozen different contributors to the, the history and the criminology of what was happening at this time. So I'll go ahead and read that here. At approximately 2.30 a.m. on March 13, 1964, Genevieve left the bar where she worked and began driving home in her red Fiat. While waiting for a traffic light to change on Hoover Avenue, she was spotted by Winston Mosley, who was sitting in his parked Chevrolet Corvair. Genevieve arrived home around 3.15 a.m. and parked her car in the Kew Gardens Long Island Railroad Station parking lot about 100 feet from her apartment's door in in an alleyway at the rear of the building. As she walked toward the apartment complex, Mosley, who had followed her home, exited his vehicle, which he had parked at a corner bus stop on Austin Street. Armed with a hunting knife, he approached Genevieve's. Genevieve ran toward the front of the building and Mosley ran after her, overtook her and stabbed her twice in the back. Genevieve screamed, oh my God, he stabbed me, help me. Several neighbors heard her cry, but only a few of them recognized the sound as a cry for help. When Robert Moser, one of the neighbors, shouted at the attacker, let that girl alone. Mosley ran away and Genevieve slowly made her way toward the rear entrance of the building, seriously injured and out of view of any witnesses. Witnesses saw Mosley enter his car, drive away, and return 10 minutes later. Shadowing his face with a wide-brimmed hat, he systematically searched the parking lot, the train station, and an apartment complex, eventually finding Genevieve, who was barely conscious and lying in a hallway at the back of the building, where a locked door had prevented her from going inside. Out of view of the street and of those who may have heard or seen any sign of the initial attack, Mosley stabbed Genevieve several more times before raping her, stealing $49 from her, and running away again. The attack spanned approximately a half an hour and knife wounds in Genevieve's hands suggested that she attempted to defend herself. A neighbor and close friend, Sophia Farrer, uh, found Genevieve shortly after the second attack and held her in her arms until the ambulance arrived. Records of the earliest calls to police are unclear and were not given a high priority. The incident occurred four years before New York City implemented a 911 emergency call system. One witness said his father called the police after the initial attack and reported that a woman was beat up but got up and was staggering around. A few minutes after the final attack, another witness, Carl Ross, wasted time calling friends for advice on what to do before finally calling the police. Genevieve was picked up by the ambulance at 4.15 a.m. and died en route to the hospital. She was buried on March 16, 1964, in Lakeview Cemetery in New Canaan, Connecticut. Mosley was married with three children and had no criminal history criminal record, rather. While in custody, Mosley confessed to killing Genovese. He detailed the attack, corroborating the physical evidence at the scene. He said that his motive for the attack was simply to kill a woman, saying he preferred to kill women because they were easier and didn't fight back. He stated that he got up that night around 2 a.m., leaving his wife asleep at home and drove through Queens to find a victim. Mosley saw Genovese on her way home and followed her to the parking lot before killing her. He also confessed to murdering and sexually assaulting two other women to committing between and to committing between 30 and 40 burglaries. Subsequent psychiatric examinations suggested that Mosley was a necrophile. So necrophiles are obviously people that love to have sex with dead people or dead things, right? So the interesting thing about this story, because again, just, just an absolutely brutal story and, and it's not a unique story. There are a lot of stories like this. There are a lot of predators out there. I think the FBI estimates that there's something like two, uh, two, 2000 current and active serial killers in the United States that are not behind bars. People that are actively killing multiple people that usually involve some sort of a rape or some sort of a sexual release. But Kitty Genovese's murder 
prompted the creation of a study of a social psychological theory called the bystander effect. Okay. So hence the name of the episode today. So the bystander effect or what other people call the bystander apathy effect or just bystander apathy. Now this story really led to research uh, and that led to actually some fairly substantial lab studies. Okay. And what these lab studies were looking at is they were trying to identify the factors as to why someone would not intervene when another person was in trouble. And during these studies, and again, these were lab studies where they were putting people in these crazy situations to see how they would respond. They'd put them in situations where they were the only person that could potentially respond, where there were other people that they could respond. And they found a bunch of different factors that kind of led to this whole idea of bystander effect or bystander apathy, the number of bystanders. Okay. So if there's a lot of people around, maybe you think I'm not the one that has to intervene because there's all these other people. Another factor they found is just general ambiguity. Maybe you can't really figure out what's going on in this exact situation. You're not sure exactly what's happening. So there's just some ambiguity that you don't know how to get past. There's also group cohesiveness. Like, are we all going to do this or am I going to be the only one here? You know, are we going to go in the same direction at the same time? Which leads to another factor, which they found, which was called the diffusion of responsibility that, you know, again, this can't just be my problem. Maybe we should all do this. And if everybody's not moving at the same time, it's going to be hard for one person to move. But all of those factors, and there were many other factors as well in the research, led to something called mutual denial, right? So a lot of people, they see something going on that's evil. They see something going on that is obviously wrong. They have the capability of intervening, but they're just going to deny that it's happening. They're going to put their head back in their books or in their newspapers, or they're just going to roll over and go back to sleep. Or in a modern context, they're just going to go back to looking on their phones, or they're going to pull out their phones and start recording, which we'll see more here in just a second. Now, uh, before anybody, you know, kind of throws it out there as this, you know, I did see that there was some hubbub that had been made about this story, you know, that the New York Times at the time uh, allegedly embellished the facts of the case when they reported at the time that 38 witnesses saw the murder. And uh, the thing about it is, is all these people that are basically saying that about this murder, like, oh, you know, the New York Times basically said that they, they messed up the reporting and they, they really put it out there. All that just distracts from the cases, the actual case. It distracts from the certifiable facts about this case. And there are three certifiable facts about this case. The first is that people 100% witnessed this murder happen. It may not have been the 38 people that the New York Times originally came up with, but people 100% witnessed the murder, this murder happen. Multiple people did. The second fact is that no one attempted to intervene. We have no record whatsoever that anyone tried to intervene for Kitty Genovese. And the third, is that Mosley returned to continue his assault when he realized that no one had or would come to Genovese's aid. So again, people 100% witnessed this. Multiple people witnessed this murder happen. No one attempted to intervene. And Mosley, who had left, returned when he realized that no one was going to come and help Genovese. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. But the reason why I thought about this story in the last couple of weeks is because there's two very, very recent stories about something similar to this happening. They don't involve murder, but they do involve really heinous crimes. So I'm just going to describe them both to you here. So here's the first story. I'll read the headline from USA Today. Angry and disgusted. Train riders help, held up phones, didn't call 911 as woman was raped on Philadelphia train, police say. So I'm going to go ahead and read from the article here. A man was charged with raping a woman on a train outside of Philadelphia as fellow passengers watched, held up phones, 
and did nothing to intervene, police said. The man, Fiston Nagoy, 35 years old, harassed the woman, groped her, and eventually raped her as fellow passengers watched the assault through more than two dozen train stops last week, authorities said. Two dozen train stops. Police believe no one called authorities, though they are investigating whether any of the witnesses may have recorded the incident on their phones. Nestle, uh, this is the, uh, Nestle, this is a guy, he's a Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority police chief. He said that both Nagoy and the victim got on the train October the 13th at the same stop, the Frankfurt Transportation Center in Northeast Philadelphia. Police said that they weren't able to stop the assault until the train reached the 69th Street Terminal in West Philadelphia, in West Philadelphia on the Market Frankfurt line, which was about 27 stops later. Again, Nestle said that the officers responded within three minutes of the lone 911 call they received from an off-duty transportation employee. Not any of the people in the car watching, from an off-duty transportation employee. Back to the article here. Police police and other officials were troubled that no one witnessing the assault intervened and held a news conference reiterating the need for people who see something unusual to report it immediately, even anonymously, and through the emergency buttons on the trains. So that's the first thing that happened. This woman was brutally raped on a train car with other people, and for dozens of 27 stops, no one intervened. But it seems like there's evidence to suggest that people pulled out their phones to record this rape. So that happened. That was a few weeks ago when I found out about that one. But then it was just this last week that I found out about story number two. And so this is from the Washington Examiner. Here's the headline. Woman punched after telling man on a train to take a chill pill. So this is from the article here. A man was recorded punching a woman in the face after she told him to take a chill pill while riding the New York subway. The clip showed the man standing over the woman who was sitting on the train. No one seemed to help her during the entire incident. So I'm actually going to show you a clip of this. So again, if you're not watching this on YouTube, you won't be able to see the clip. You'll just be able to hear it. So guys, make sure that you subscribe and watch this over on YouTube. But apparently before, you know, the person started, because every time I see a video like this, I'm always wondering what was happening right before the person started hitting record or what was happening right before that they may have recorded and edited it out. But apparently from all the other people that were there, all the other witness testimony before this clip, all right, before this clip started, this guy was screaming and yelling from the moment he entered the subway car. So imagine a a subway car. Most of us have been on one of those and it's crowded. I mean, there was not a whole lot of elbow room. From the moment he walked onto the, the the subway car with his family, he was telling everyone to get the F out of the way. He was screaming. He was kind of moving his elbows around saying, don't anybody get in my way. Don't anybody mess with me and my family. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and show the clip to you here. And just fair warning, it is a graphic clip. For those of you watching and or listening, there is some uh, foul language that I'm not going to bleep out. So if you are sitting there with kids, you might fast forward a little bit or come back to this later. But let's go ahead and go into the clip here. Say to my face now. Say to my face now. Tell me to take a chill pill. Tell me. Tell, say, say the word chill pill. Oh. Say the word chill pill. Oh. Say the word chill pill. Oh. Miss, yo, you wildin'. She a female. What? Mind your business. Say it again. That's OD. That's OD. I'm tired of you niggas in my black business. You understand? Mind your business. Tired of y'all niggas all up in my fucking business. I'm dealing with my fucking kids. You understand? Mind your business. Mind your business. It ain't about being a role model. It's about getting my fucking respect
and I'm ready to fuck anything up that's in my business. So, so that's that's how me, man's right there. Call at me, man. And he let his but girlfriend get robbed. What I thought, y'all niggas out here looking for victims. I'm a fucking suspect. You understand? Oh no. Suspect. I do shit out here. This is nuts. mind your business. And when my family on the train, you wanna rock move the nigga so bad. out the way. And it's like he's not even real good. So again, for those of you not watching, it might be hard to see there at the beginning. It wasn't a skipping track. It was basically someone that had been slowing it down and they were doing kind of a repeat of where he hit her. They were showing it over and over there, uh, over and over. But for those of you not watching on YouTube or if it was hard for you to hear, he's screaming in the woman's face. We see that from the very beginning of the video. Apparently, she told him to take a chill pill because, again, he's getting on the train. He's acting a fool. He's being loud about all that. And so this woman apparently, you know, feeling like she could do this, she said, take a chill pill. So he yelled and said, say it to my face now. He's in this woman's face. Say it to my face now. Tell me to take a chill pill. Say the word chill pill. She said chill pill. He punched her right in the face. Now, the good thing about this entire thing is apparently this dude has pillow hands because otherwise he would have knocked her out. It was a clean shot right to her jaw and she just kind of sat there and ate it. But then he goes on this ridiculous tirade. So he's saying, I'm tired of you N words in my black business. If you couldn't hear that, he said, it ain't about me being a role model. It's about getting my effing respect from people like you pointing at the woman. Then he said, you and all these other racists out here, mind your business. And then he said, and when my family on the train move out the way. Right. He just kept saying that he was saying other things as he was getting off the train car, but we don't have that part of the video. But here's the thing that I saw in the video. So again, if you haven't seen this clip, you need to go find it or you need to go to our YouTube channel. It's right there. I counted just in the screen, in the frame, the number of men that I could see. Okay. Just the ones that I could see. Now this person was recording it up and down, right? They were recording it landscape or whatever. It was just up and down. And I saw nine men, nine supposed men that are within punching distance of this piece of crap, right? Nine. And they did nothing. And that was just the men that I could see. I couldn't see who was to the left and the right of the person holding their phone taking video. And I guess there was one brave soul who you may have heard at this point, you know, after the dude punches the woman, he said, whoa, man, whoa, man. And it looks like this guy was actually with that woman. They, they were the two that were closest to together, so they, they were either together or he was just the closest one. All he could muster was, whoa, man, like, whoa, crazy. What are you doing? Okay. Now, why did I describe those two stories? This rape near Philadelphia and this assault on the train in New York City. They have some things in common. Okay. They actually have two things in common. And it's going to sound awfully familiar in terms of what we just talked about with Kitty Genovese. Number one, no one tried to intervene. Number two, People recorded these incidences on their phones. Think about that. Think about seeing somebody in distress, being raped, and thinking to yourself, your first thought is, I'm going to pull out my phone and record this. This might be good for social media. Think about just witnessing a woman getting assaulted on the train for talking by a man that's going crazy, that might assault other people. And the first thing you think to do is pull out your phone and record. Now, there's some value when you record these things on your phone because you can turn that over to police later. It can help with, you know, getting somebody put in jail or with charges or whatever. But in general, I'm talking about why people are sitting there and not intervening. Okay. Now, I'm not exactly going out on a limb here, but for me personally, in terms of the things that I've seen in stories like this, I think the bystander effect is getting much worse in our modern, modern context. I think it's getting much, much worse. Now, a fair argument against what I just said is the fact that, well, the, the ubiquity of phones, 
and cameras and, and videos on the, on these phones is is causing us to think that there's more of this happening than ever because we can actually see it. It's kind of the same phenomenon that you see with, with parents in a modern context. They don't let their kids like, you know, just play out in the playground by themselves or play out in the neighborhood by themselves because they hear about all these kids that get kidnapped, which certainly happens. But in our modern context, that's actually happening less than it did back in the day, back in the 50s, 60s and 70s, where parents had no idea where the kids were, right? With just latchkey kids that could do whatever they wanted. But uh, I think that might be a fair argument here, but I do again think that this is getting worse. This bystander effect is getting worse in our modern context. And here are some of the reasons why. Now, these aren't in any particular order. These are just kind of in the order that I was thinking through them on. The first is that cowardly men are being celebrated in a modern context. So men are becoming cowards. Because if you're wired to be the type of guy that likes to get patted on the head and being told that you're being a good boy, you're going to do the things necessary to be called a good boy. And in our modern context, we don't like virile, strong men. We don't, we don't like those guys. We like the cowardly, go-along-to-get-along guys. You know, the sweater vest guys. Those are the people that we really, really like, okay? Those are the ones that are celebrated. And so, if you need somebody that's courageous in that moment, and you're only surrounded by cowards, there's no one that's going to be able to intervene, right? Another reason is all these claims in, modern, in modernity of toxic masculinity. Okay. Men, just like I was talking about, you know, they want to be patted on the head for doing the right thing. They also want to avoid doing the wrong thing. And so if you're told constantly that developing true masculinity is in and of itself toxic, this is something that you're not going to want to do because men don't want to be seen as toxic. Yeah, you know, I bring this up all the time. You know, idiots that claim that one in five women on a co on college campuses will be sexually assaulted, which is completely bogus, a completely bogus stat. If you and four of your friends are sitting in the same room at that moment, one of you's thinking, gosh, which one of us is the rapist, right? We don't want to do that. Like all of us want to avoid these negative stigmas about masculinity. And you've been told maybe since elementary school, now you're in college, that masculinity is toxic, right? So I think that that's aiding what we're seeing now with the bystander effect. Another thing that I think is aiding this is attacks on gender in general, okay? Because here, here's the thing. We've been told that gender is a social construct and it's separate from sex. That regardless of your biological sex, regardless of what biology says or your chromosomes say, it's whatever you feel, right? That's what we've been told by the modern gender people, the modern gender revo revolutionaries, the reformers, right? But the question I have for these people is, if gender is just a social construct, then there, why is there any reason for a man to defend a woman? Because, you know, a lot of, you know, kind of left-wing people, a lot of blue checkmark type people, you know, especially when they saw that assault of that woman on the bus, you know, or on the, on the subway when she got hit, you know, they were like, oh my gosh, someone should have stepped up to protect her. And it's like, but wait a minute, according to your worldview, you're talking about a man should hop in to protect them. Why are you just assuming the gender of those people that looked like men around her? Maybe those people don't identify as males. Maybe they're actually, actually biological females that identify as men. So, so and again, why, why would we want a man to defend a woman? Because men and women are the exact same. Like, if, if I was on that subway and I hopped in to save that woman, am I doing a disservice to her? Am I doing violence to her by just interceding? Because she's a woman. She can take care of herself. She's just as capable as a man. Again, you see the convoluted way these attacks on gender happen, right? Another reason that I thought of is that there's an over-reliance in our society on someone else. And you can just fill in the blank with who those someone else's are, right? 
this over-reliance on, oh, the, the police will take care of it. You know, if something were to ever happen to me or my family, I would just call the police, even though I think the average response time for police in the United States is like seven minutes, if they show up at all. Because if you live in Seattle or if you live in Los Angeles, they may not show up at all, right? This, this over-reliance may be on the military, right? If something really, really went, went wrong, the military would be there to protect us. Right now, what we're seeing just in an era coming out of COVID and things like that is the government. Where we're going to rely on the government. Why are we having such a problem with getting people to go back to work? It's because the government has been paying people to stay home for over a year now. People are getting used to it. They're getting used to life without having to produce anything, right? They're relying on the government. Maybe we're relying on parents, right? You've heard about these helicopter parents that are constantly hovering around the kid, making sure to push, you know, everything that could possibly happen out of the way, all these negative potentialities. They're getting them out of the way and they're relying on their parents so much. They don't rely on themselves. They don't rely on other people. They're relying on their parents. And so in this type of a setting, we're looking at this situation. I'm assuming with a lot of these bystanders are looking at these situations thinking, I don't need to intervene because something else or someone else is going to intervene. I personally don't have to do anything. And another one I thought of is Black Lives Matter. The organization and the movement has a lot to do with what we're seeing on this bystander effect. Okay. so. Black Lives Matter and, and acolytes of critical race theory and all these different things, they've convinced white people that they, that they, I guess we'll say it this way. They've convinced white people that aren't racist, that in fact, they are racist, regardless of what their personal feelings or worldview is. They're racist by dint of birth, right? By, by the level of melanin in their skin. But they've also convinced black people that they're victims that need to fight back. And I'm not going out on a limb here when I say that either. Everyone that's white is a racist and everyone that's black is a victim and they deserve to fight back, sometimes physically. And so I don't know if you remember that going back to the video and even for those of you just listening to it, the situation on the subway, that was a black man assaulting a white woman. But again, on the hierarchy of intersectionality, you know, the white woman isn't nearly as oppressed as the black man. And so I'm sure there were people thinking in their heads, if they intervened, they're intervening to stop a black man from doing something. And again, I, it sounds even racist that I'm even describing it in that way, but that's how these people think. That's not how I think, because if I was in that subway car, I wouldn't be thinking, oh, I'm intervening as this white man is attacking this white or as this black man is attacking this white woman. I would just be thinking, oh, there's a man attacking a woman. I should probably stop that. Right. I should probably intervene. But that's not how these modern, you know, uh, race, race peddlers and all these people think about it. So they might be pausing thinking if I intervene here and someone's taking video, I'm going to be branded as a racist. If I assault this black man for assaulting a white woman, I'm going to be seen as a racist. I, I might lose my job. You know, my family might have to move. I'm going to be receiving death threats. Black Lives Matter is going to come to my street and try to burn it down, right? That's the calculus people are having to go through in their brains. But again, think about this man. Think about the words that he was saying. He was looking around and he pointed to a train full of people of all races. I, I saw a bunch of different races in this video. And he's pointing at him saying, all you racists, right? And specifically pointing at this woman who he doesn't know, calling her a racist because she said, take a chill pill. Now, should she maybe just kept her mouth shut? I don't know. You can maybe debate that, but she certainly didn't deserve to get hit in the beak. But again, think about this man. Think about this victim mentality. And, and the whole time I'm watching this man as he's ranting and raving, I'm thinking about, man, I bet this guy didn't have a dad at home. And not just because, statistically speaking, that's probably true, because if you look at the statistics about black fathers and fatherlessness in the black family in America since the 1960s, I just mean in general, the level of anger 
it, it was directed at anything and everything from the moment he got on the train. Get the F out of my way. This faux masculinity. Like, nobody better touch me. I'm on one. I'm a real deal. I'm, I'm this, that. I'm the other thing, right? Where does that come from? You didn't have a dad in your life that was modeling that to you, a good dad modeling that to you. Where did you pick that up? But again, he might be listening to these race peddlers, these people in Black Lives Matter saying that, dude, you're a victim. You're a victim. The moment you walk on that train car, people are going to, th they're going to be scared of you, right? And it's just because you're black. And apparently he's absorbed that into who he is as a person, right? It's damning. It's terrible. But some other reasons why I think, you know, the bystander effect is getting even crazier in these modern times is politicians are encouraging the public to pretend that violent crime isn't happening. I mean, we've seen this since the George, George Floyd riots in 2020. Violent crime has spiked all over the country, not just in major cities, but especially in major cities. They're, they're, the violence has gone up. Murders have gone up. Assaults, robberies, batteries. They've, they've all gone through the roof, right? But then you have politicians, typically all Democrats, typically all blue tie people, telling you, don't worry about that. Yeah, we know violent crime is happening, but there's all these other things that are important. Like Lori Lightfoot of Chicago, the mayor of Chicago, she comes to mind. She never wants to talk about the number of people that are murdered every week in her city. She wants to talk about racial injustice and systemic racism and, you know, misogyny and the patriarchy and Trump and all these different things. That's all she can focus on. So these politicians are just telling you, hey, these things aren't happening. And for a lot of people, if you're told constantly, if you're gaslit constantly and told that these things aren't really happening, if you see it actually happening in person, I'm sure there's some sort of a cognitive dissonance going on. Like, wait a minute, I was told these things aren't happening and or that they're not important. How should I be dealing with this exact situation? And it's going to be hard for you to know the answer. It's going to be hard for you to actually figure out what you should say and what you should do in those moments. But the last thing I'll talk about here in terms of why I think that this is increasing in our modern age is social media. I mean, there's a lot of problems and there's a lot of ills that come from social media. But again, I want to go back to this key fact from these two modern cases, right? These people decided not to intervene. Instead, they decided to pick up their phones and record. That was one of their first thoughts. Now, typically people are recording things because they're already thinking about posting it later. Again, this video that went viral, this woman getting hit on the subway, it was posted on TikTok. Right, for those of you that, that saw it on our YouTube channel, obviously you see that. So this person was thinking about content creation. Now, for me as a content creator, this is what I do for a profession. That's something that I think about as well. I am thinking about moments like, you know, when my son's doing something really sweet or when I see something happening out in the world or, or something like that, that I think would be interesting to bring to you guys. That's my job. It's my job to do those things. But that's what these people are thinking. Instead of, you know, they were probably scrolling on their phones to begin with. But as soon as these assaults happened, the rape on the train, the assault on the subway, they didn't think to just put their phones down put it in their pocket and intervene. They thought, I'm going to record this. And again, I don't have this positive disposition that these people were recording it, thinking that they could give this video to police later. Again, the, I think that I've spent a lot of time talking about the assault on the subway, but the rape on the train in Pennsylvania. Again, 27 stops. For those of you that have been on trains in these big areas, there's a decent amount of time, like literal time in between these stops. 27 stops. You're seeing this assault happen on a train car that you're on and you do nothing. And again, 911 received one phone call from an off-duty employee of that area of the transportation department. 
I mean, what kind of a seared consciousness? We don't know how many people were in the train car. They haven't released that information, or at least I wasn't able to find that information. But let's just say it was one other person. Assuming that it's not a 95-year-old woman, why would that person not intercede regardless? And again, it wasn't one person. It was, it was a multitude of people because that's why the headline was so crazy. A woman being raped, unfortunately, is not headline news, but it was the fact that there was a full train car of people watching the assault happen and they did nothing to intervene. Now, obviously, I know that the majority of my audience here are men. We appreciate you guys. We also appreciate our female listeners, and the majority of our listeners are Christian men. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're listening to this. That's super awesome. We would love for you to accept Jesus. But as for right now, let's go ahead and get into this content in terms of what I would say to Christian men, because I think Christian men should have some reactions to a video like this. And the easiest one and the lowest hanging fruit is it should make you furious. You should absolutely be furious about these videos that you've seen, about the the story of Kitty Genovese. That should make you absolutely righteously indignant, right? Everyone should, should see that and understand that. But another emotion that you perhaps maybe don't feel is it should make you sad. I know a lot of guys really aren't in touch with the sad side of their emotions, or that's the one that they try to suppress as much as possible because they might end up you know, shedding tears or something like that. But it should make you really, really sad. Because after I was done being furious about these stories, that's what I was immediately. I was sad for these individual women, the one that was raped and the one that was hit. I was sad for Kitty Genovese and for her family, even though she died you know, 70 years ago, 60 years ago, something like that, right? Just rough, rough situation. But I was sad for the state of society, maybe more than anything, that these people didn't intervene, that these people just wanted to take video of it so they would have a copy of it from their point of view on their phone. How sad is that? I, I can't think of much else that could be more sad than that. But the, the thing that I landed on after I kind of had my wave of emotion with fury and with sadness is as a Christian, and, and for you specifically, it should make you want to prepare. I don't mean like prepper, like go buy a bunch of canned foods. It should make you want to prepare to intercede if something like this were to happen near you. And this really gets into the sheepdog mindset. For those of you that aren't familiar with the sheepdog mindset, go back to episode 135 of this podcast. It was a great interview I did with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman is the one that came up with the sheepdog mindset, but he basically talks about how there are three kinds of people in this world. There are wolves. There are sheep and there are sheepdogs. The majority of the populace are sheep. If you don't understand, a sheep is a really, really stupid animal, right? A sheep needs protection, right? But the wolf is constantly prowling around looking to pick off sheep. And the only thing to keep the sheep safe is a sheepdog. The sheepdog intercedes between the wolf and the sheep to keep the sheep safe, to keep the wolf at bay. And so he talks about that mindset in kind of a uh, more militaristic mindset, but also that has kind of trickled down into an everyday mindset. It's this mindset of being prepared that if one of these crazy situations is to happen, that you are ready to go and ready to respond. And actually, this happened in the last couple of weeks as well. There was a recent video of a retired Marine. He's at a convenience store in Yuma, Arizona. So I'm going to go and show the clip to you here, and then we'll get back into the content. So here's the clip. And new this morning, a robbery suspect is behind bars thanks to a brave U.S. Marine. Take a look at this video. An armed man walks into the gas station, points a gun at the cashier, but is quickly disarmed by the Marine. This happened at a Chevron in Yuma yesterday. 
He was able to hold down the robber until police arrived. The other two suspects got away. Thankfully, no one was hurt. When deputies asked the Marine how he was able to take control of the situation, he said, the Marine Corps taught me not to mess around. Wow, some quick acting there oh in gosh, a, what goodness. would have been a very dangerous situation. So for those of you that couldn't see what was happening, and I think I said he was a retired Marine, so I, I guess he might be still a Marine. I'm not sure if he's still in the Marine Corps, but there you go. The, what happened in this clip is this guy is sitting there. He's got his bag, so he apparently had already bought his snacks or whatever. He's talking to the person behind the uh, behind the counter. And so if, you, if you're not watching the video again, from the video standpoint, you can see this guy and you can see the front door. So then as he's talking to the clerk, he turns around and he sees two guys walking in the door. They've got masks over their faces. You know, their entire faces are covered, not just like COVID masks, these stupid cloth masks or something like that. But the guy that walks in the door at the very beginning, he's got a gun out and he's pointing it pat, not, not at this guy. He's pointing it past this guy at the clerk. And I mean, this guy with the gun takes one step, two steps, and immediately this guy, this Marine, he reacts. He grabs the guy's arm that has the gun in it and he starts pummeling this guy and then they fly out of screen and the guy that was behind the guy with the gun who was apparently with him, this just this coward just took off running, right? He, he didn't want any part of what was happening. And so apparently what happened is this Marine, he, he you know got the firearm away from this guy. He held him down until help came and potentially saved lives, right? In that exact moment, we don't know if this gun was loaded. I'm assuming that it was like this guy could have went off half, co half cocked and just absolutely started killing people. We have no idea. But the Marine responded immediately immediately he didn't stop and pause he didn't stop and pray and i'm not against prayer he didn't stop and, and you know ask somebody for help he immediately responded he immediately did what needed to happen in that moment to stop potential violence from happening and if the violence hadn't occurred he stopped an injustice of someone getting their property stolen right whether it be their money or any of the stuff that was in the store okay now that video in light of the other situations that we've talked about on this podcast begs this big time question for all of us to reckon with. And, and that is, are you ready right now to intervene? Are you ready right now to intervene? You've got to wrestle with that question. And that kind of splinters off into other questions. Are you physically capable? Are you physically capable of intervening? So this man was obviously a Marine. He had some violence training, let's say. And in that moment, again, he didn't have to consult with a trainer. He didn't do anything other than react. He was physically capable and ready to disarm this person, right? And for a lot of you guys, and I've talked about this as well, this is especially bad with big guys, guys that are physically big or tall. They don't know how to fight, but they assume since they're big that that's going to be all that they need. Now, I've told this story on this podcast before, and I've done this to try to encourage you guys. Yes, you should train jujitsu. You should train wrestling. You should train Muay Thai, kickboxing, Western boxing, those things. I have a buddy who's six foot five, 250 pounds, 240 pounds, right? Big, big guy, physically enormous. So he showed up to the forge on Sunday night to train with our crew, with my foxhole guys. And then we bring another guy out, and this is the drill that we're going to do. One guy lays on his back. The other guy comes in and lays inside control. And for two minutes, the guy on bottom is just trying to stand up. And the guy on top is just trying to hold the other guy down, right? So you don't have to know a lot of jujitsu to understand the rules of the game, right? If you're on bottom, you just need to get up. If you're on top, you need to hold the guy down. So what we did is we took my buddy who's six foot five, 240 pounds, and we laid him down on his back. And then we brought in, for those of you that know this guy, Jermaine, the coach, right? A guy from my foxhole. Jermaine is about, he's maybe five, seven, five, eight, right? Uh, maybe five, six, I don't know, not very tall. And about 150 pounds, 155 pounds, right? 
Great athlete, very, very strong, but small compared to my other buddy. And we hit the timer. Timer goes ding. And for two minutes, Jermaine, the coach, Jermaine, the athlete, right? He holds down this six foot five, 240 pound monster beast. And why did that happen? Because six foot five, 240 had no idea what to do. He was untrained. And the moment he stood up, he had this just wide eyed look like this thousand yard stare because he was like, oh crap, that really, really sucked. And he and I talked about it afterwards and he said, yeah, man, like I always just assumed I'm, I'm such a big guy that I would never, you know, not be able to defend myself. And this is a guy with sisters. He, he didn't have a girlfriend or a wife at the time. And he's like, what if my sisters were being assaulted and, and someone else was holding me down and I couldn't help them, right? He always assumed that he could default to his size. That, you know, when the moment came, he would just turn it on, whatever that means. But guys, if you're not trained in combatives of some kind, on what planet do you think that you're all of a sudden going to know how to throw a punch or throw a kick or take someone down or choke them out or break their arm or, or disable them, you know, take, take their weapon away? All right. Again, are you physically capable of doing those things? Have you ever tried to take a human being that's standing up in the middle of a room down onto the floor? Have you ever tried that? Have you ever succeeded at doing that? Again, the, the question is, are you ready right now to intervene? A lot of you guys are not physically capable of doing that. So don't assume that you will be able to when the time comes, right? And it may not be a stranger that needs your assistance. It may be a loved one. But that goes, again, that's the physical side. The next question is, are you mentally capable? mentally capable. So my wife and I have had this discussion when we've talked about, you know, concealed carrying and, and what to do if I'm not there and something's happening at the house or something like that. And you can talk all day long. You can do dry fire drills. You, you can kind of work different scenarios in the house and that's all great. That's great for muscle memory. That's great for physicality. But the question that I asked my wife is, are you mentally okay with ending another person's life in order to save your own? in order to save mine, in order to save the, 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 you know, the life of sweet baby James. And again, her answer just wasn't, yeah, I'm super capable. I'm immediately capable. She really had to chew on that, but that's where we are now. We know that we are mentally okay with ending another person's life. If they are intending to end ours, there's a mental capability here as well. Because also there's a the capability of being mentally calm in a scenario where you need to be calm. Because what you didn't hear about that, that guy in Yuma, Arizona, the Marine, is he didn't take the firearm away from this guy and then pull it out and put it to the guy's temple and blow him away. He was able to subdue this man, to control the situation, and then remain calm. Again, he didn't fly off the handle. He was able to be mentally capable in that moment to intervene. But again, I go back to this guy in Yuma. He didn't have to think, but for a split second, he reacted. Again, go back to the video, watch it on our YouTube channel. He was so ready. Again, half a second before those guys walked in, he was talking to the clerk about God knows what, football, the weather, like uh, Funyuns, like who knows what this guy was thinking about. But then he turned it on immediately because he was capable. He had already had that internal dialogue that in a situation, I'm going to be the guy that reacts. I'm going to be the guy that intervenes, okay? Which begs this last question, which is different for everybody which is, are you willing to deal with the consequences in order to protect and potentially save someone else? Because there will be consequences, right? Because let's say in the struggle, we'll go back to the guy in the convenience store in Arizona. Let's say there was a struggle. Let's say the Marine got the upper hand and he killed the other guy or hurt him or in some way. There's going to be lawsuits now. 
that criminal's family is going to come at that Marine and try to get him for everything he's worth, right? We've seen that happen a lot. If you use your firearm to intercede, even in your own home, and depending on the, upon the state you're in or the country that you live in, right? We appreciate all our international listeners. Like if you assault somebody in your own home, that's trying to do you harm, maybe even trying to kill you. You might be the one that's walked out in handcuffs. There's plenty of situations like that that have happened. That's why there's things like the UFCCA, you know, the, these concealed carry organizations. That's why they teach people what to do if they're involved in a shooting with their firearm, right? You don't just immediately start blabbing and telling everybody exactly what happened. You have to think about yourself and how to protect yourself. But also, there's the other consequences. Remember the, the Black Lives Matter discussion that I was having? Let's say you intercede as a black person or a person of color or a trans person is, is getting after somebody else. In that moment, you have to think, crap, the LGBTQ people are going to come at me because I went after this tranny that was beating up somebody else. Our man, Black Lives Matter is going to start picketing outside of my office building because I interceded and there was a black person of, you know, or another person of color there. You have to be willing to deal with that though, because in that exact moment that like, let's go to the scenario on the, on the train in Pennsylvania, someone's being raped and that exact moment, are you going to be thinking about, about Black Lives Matter? Are you going to be thinking about, you know, the LGBTQ lobby? Are you going to be thinking about angry people on Twitter? Are you going to be thinking about yourself in that moment? Are you going to be thinking sacrificially about somebody else and what you need to do in order to intervene? Okay. But now we need to go back to the scripture from the beginning, Jeremiah 22, three, it says this, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor, him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Now I want to give you a little bit of context on Jeremiah and specifically Jeremiah 22, three. These are the words, so in the book of Jeremiah, of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was a confronter. That was kind of his thing. He was always preaching the truth, and he was doing it to people that didn't really like that very much. Okay, so he was very unpopular with a lot of people, and he, he paid the price for, you know, basically preaching the truth to these people. But during Jeremiah books 21 through 23, he's confronting the nation of Judah's kings, right? He's basically telling the ruling authorities in that place what they should and shouldn't be doing, right? He's really giving them the business. And in verse three, he's warning these men, these, these strong men, these men with power, these men with influence, right? To not use that power and influence for evil. Instead, to protect vulnerable people. Okay. So that's the context of that verse. But also leads into a verse that, you know, should be fairly common to you, and that's Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's where we get the concept of the Imago Dei. We have the image of God written on our souls and on our hearts from the moment that we were conceived, right? We're made in his image. So if someone that is being made or that is made in the image of God is in trouble, we should protect that person. Again, going back to Jeremiah 22, 3, this, he's basically telling these people, these people that have power, these people that have capability to not use that capability for evil, but to use it to protect people that aren't as powerful. And going back to the two scenarios from today, in that moment on the train, that lone woman that was being raped by a man, she was someone that deserved protection in that moment. She has the Imago Dei. The image of God is on her. Someone should have interceded to protect her, to use their power and their influence and whatever else to protect her. The same thing to a lesser degree to the woman that was punched on the train. Someone should have interceded. 
because somebody with the Imago Day assaulted another person with the Imago Day, right? Someone used their power, their ability to hurt someone that was weaker than them. Yes, I'm referring to this woman being weaker than this man. And that is true in general as well. I know we're not allowed to say those things these days, but that is true in general as well. And so for you Christian men that are all too content with allowing these things to happen, you are adding to the modern bystander effect. And that is not what God is calling you to do. Again, I wanted to give you some context on the book of Jeremiah so you didn't just seem I was like proof texting, just pulling this text out and just throwing it at you. But again, every single person that you're ever eyeball to eyeball with is created in the image of God. Okay? That includes the unborn. Again, it's kind of hard to be eyeball to eyeball with the unborn, but I think you get the, the, the whole idea. A lot of you guys are very willing to flame online or to go stand outside of abortion mills and, you know, you know, condemn what people are doing in there. And God bless you for doing that. But if someone was being assaulted and you could intervene, you would just navel gaze. You twiddle your thumbs. You might even pull your phone out, start recording. So I want us to adjust our focus and adjust our outrage. And again, to embrace the sheepdog mindset. Because if you're going to be a rugged Christian, if you're going to live the, the life that we call men to live, to cultivate spiritual, mental, and physical resilience on a daily basis, one of the outworkings of that is you being willing to intercede, being ready to intercede, and actually following through if the moment arises. Okay? You guys got to think through that. And if you're unwilling to do that, you need to make some adjustments, serious adjustments, and right now. All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. And the only link I have for you today is the link to episode 135 of this podcast. That's the one I talked about earlier in the show, and that is my interview with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. And you can also check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And lastly, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.